Hey, this is Junior Ziegler. Thanks for listening to my podcast. I hope this time in God's Word encourages you. Hope it brings you closer to God. Hope it challenges your perspective. Glad you're joining. Enjoy the message. A while back, my wife and I were watching some TV before bed, and this commercial came on for something called moon sand. You ever see this stuff? It's like kinetic sand, only it's a very fine sand, like, like a powder. It's like a dust, and it sticks together, so it's not messy. You can make sculptures with it. It's moldable. It's pretty cool. Like, the commercial sold me on it. I wanted some. And so we're watching this commercial, and, and my wife looks at me, and she goes, I bet I can make some of that stuff for the girls. It's like, why would you want to make this stuff? It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. You can just go ahead and buy it. Why, why would you want to make that? And she said, because I, I can. I'm, I'm going to make some. So she goes on to these, these mommy blogs online, which is probably the first problem, and a bunch of these mommy blogs are, are saying things like, uh, you know, we have the perfect recipe. It's just two items, uh, oil and flour. And the moms are all raving about it. It's like the store-bought moon sand, only it's organic and it's homemade. And we made it perfectly as a family and then sing Kumbaya together. It was great. You got to try it. I told Nicole, I said, don't, don't listen to them. They're just trying to screw with you. That's not going to work. Well, my wife, who loves doing stuff with our kids, I love her to death, she turns our kitchen into this laboratory to make moon sand for the girls. And she makes this huge tub of flour, flour and oil. And she swears, honey, it's just like moon sand. Not like moon sand. But she puts this big tub in our basement for our girls to play with. And I'm sure you can imagine what happened next. Uh, one day, while my wife and I were cooking some dinner, I, I walked downstairs to grab something, and I found my girls throwing it at each other like snowballs. I mean, it was everywhere. I'm standing on the stairs, and I'm looking at flour and oil on, on the walls and in their hair and all over the floor and on the furniture, and my girls see me. They see my face, and they stop immediately. I didn't need to even say anything, though I did, but they could read it on my face, and I asked the question, I said, why? My youngest at the time, she was two, a glob of flour falls out of her mouth and she just kind of shrugs with her shoulders, which translation means uh, I'm two, it's what I do. But my face is that of like horror and anger and, and confusion. They were in trouble and they knew it because they could see it on my face. Parents or not, have you ever had one of those moments where a little kid teaches you a lesson about God? It's kind of funny how God does that. He did it with me right after the flower oil war. It was 1 a.m. Uh, I woke up to my daughter coughing, and so I, I left our room, and I, and I went into her room, and I sat on my lap on her bed, and she keeps coughing and coughing and coughing, and then all of a sudden she looks up at me, and she pukes all over me, all over her, all over the bed. It's all in her hair, and I made that face. I wasn't angry with her, but I had that face of, oh, gross, look at this mess. It's 1 a.m. I got to put her in the shower. I got to change the bedding. I had that, like, that face, and when I made that face, I'll never forget my daughter's response. She looks at me like she did during the flour and oil war, and she misread my face, and she started sobbing, saying exactly what she said in the basement during that flour and oil war. She kept saying, Daddy, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I clean it up, I clean it up, I clean it up. It was like this knife in my chest. 
Like she totally misread my face. She thought I was angry with her. And I kept reassuring her as her dad, no, daddy's not angry. It's okay. Daddy's here to help you, not punish you. I'm not angry with you. I'm going to clean it up. It's okay. And as I held my sobbing, puke-covered daughter, I thought of our Heavenly Father. How often do we misread Him? And how much does that hurt Him? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of thinking God is cosmically frustrated with me. He tolerates me. He, he somehow regrets the cross because of me, because I'm an idiot, and I've made a lot of messes. Like, there are times I think God looks at me like I stood on the stairs that one day looking at my daughters, and he's shaking his head at me going, what are you doing, Junior? Why? And like my two-year-old, I look at him and shrug, I don't know, I'm 33. <laughs> like there are times that God gets frustrated, especially with me, and rightfully so. But too many of us, way too many of us, are living each day as if that is God's only face toward you. He just puts up with you. God is overall just unhappy with you. He simply tolerates you. You ever feel that way? That's a big deal. There's a big problem. And today we're going to find Jesus address that in the most brilliant, shockingly loving way. This text is so beautiful, so gripping. You're going to love this. Mark chapter 5 is where we're at. Mark chapter 5. Uh, if you're in your living room right now or maybe your bedroom, I really encourage you to grab a Bible, uh, dust it off from your shelf if it's on your shelf. If you don't have a Bible, you can go on Bible uh, Gateway and there's a Bible there. Or we have the Bridge app. Uh, you can download that app. We have the Bible there as well. But I really encourage you, uh, grab a Bible. We're going to be walking slowly through this text together. And it's great when we can all have the words uh, in our hands. Mark chapter 5. Beginning in verse 24. Let me pray before we jump into this. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you have asked believers to call you Father, Abba, Dad. And God, I believe that you have something big for us today. Because way too many of us, and I am guilty of this, you know this, misread your face. So, Father, we ask that you draw us closer to you using this text today. And I believe you will do that. So please open up our hearts, engage our minds. This is your word. We believe it is true. We receive what it says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 24. Before we jump into this, though, I just kind of want to catch us up to speed as to what's going on here. Jesus is on his way to go heal a little girl who's about to die. And we'll look at that story closer next week. But this little girl is about to die, and the dad comes and gets Jesus to go heal his daughter. And, and you put yourself in the dad's shoes. The, the dad is no doubt in a rush. He's stressing out. He's, he's probably trying to get Jesus to hurry along and walk faster. And as they're on their way to this little girl, this story, this crazy story happens. Mark puts it this way. In Mark chapter 5, verse 24, he writes, and he, meaning Jesus, went with him, meaning the dad. So Jesus went with the dad. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Mark is doing what Mark loves to do. He's trying to bring the reader, bring us into the story. And So let's go into the story with him. 
Jesus is probably on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater lake in Israel. He would have been in a town in this vicinity here, which is where Jesus called home. Capernaum is in this area as well. This is an area that Jesus knew very well. It's an area that knew Jesus well. And his boat just sailed onto one of the shores. It's likely a warm day on the Sea of Galilee. The birds swoop between the calm waters on the lake and their nest on the shore. The fishing boats are docked and being unloaded as the men carry their catch to the marketplace to sell. A gentle breeze comes off the lake, ruffling the palm branches that line the shore. It's a typical day on the Sea of Galilee until that boat came in. And as soon as someone recognized it from shore, people spread word, Yahashua, Yahashua, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And as always, a small but growing crowd meets the boat as Jesus steps off. And it looks like a stressed out man got there first because he's got Jesus' full attention there on the dock. And Jesus follows him and the crowd follows Jesus off the shoreline, up the bank, and onto that rough cobblestone street where more people flock from alleys and and houses and a thick crowd grows around Jesus. Little kids shimmy their way through the crowd and stand on carts to get a better view of Jesus. Where is Jesus going? And, and why is that man that he's following so stressed out? And how is Jesus going to get to where he needs to go with all of this chaos? And then the camera switches scenes from Jesus to a woman who's been swallowed up by this crowd. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and it's been all that she had. It was no better. Rather, she grew worse. Okay, so the Bible is not rated G. And uh, all the parents who are with us right now just opened up another screen for the kids to watch the BK Lounge, which is a great idea, parents. You should have the kids watch BK Lounge at this point. Uh, but, but I want you to stay with me, though, parents. The Bible is not PG. This woman has a private issue. And for 12 years, she's been hemorrhaging, uh, which has likely made her anemic. Not only is this miserable, but she is not herself. This is very dangerous, especially during the first century. And Mark puts in verse 26 that she's been to many physicians. And first century medicine, it's only gotten worse. She tries this specialist. She tries her friend's doctor or things just keep getting worse, and some things never change. Every doctor has a bill, and she's spent everything. To make matters worse in this culture, her condition meant that she was an unclean person. According to the law, bleeding meant that you were unclean for seven days following that episode, following that injury, which means for this woman, anything that she laid on, anything that she touched, anything that she sat on was unclean. That's socially Spiritually, she was not allowed to go to the temple to worship until she had been clean for a week. So she doesn't feel near to God. She likely sees this as a punishment to her. In this culture, there were rules. If you were unclean like her, you had to announce it to everybody. Try starting a conversation that way. Hey, just, just so you know, before you get any closer, uh, I'm unclean. Oh, please don't sit in that chair. Oh, please don't, please don't shake my hand. Careful. Try getting a date that way. Try getting a friend that way. Anytime she made her way to the marketplace of that city, she had to announce, unclean, 
unclean, unclean. Some of us can't stand social distancing for two months. Try 12 years. She's socially rejected, spiritually disconnected, financially spent, physically drained. Nobody wants her, has wanted her. She likely believes God doesn't want her either because she can't contribute to society. She hasn't been in church in over a decade. She has nothing to give financially. Her private pain has drained her and has resulted in this jaded view of God. God is upset. And I wonder if you're there. Or if you're on your way there. You know, that one issue in your life, you know, whether it's your fault or, or whether it's not, but it's hidden and it's your source of shame, it's your source of pain, it often makes you feel distant, kind of closed off. And if you could just get that one issue resolved, maybe you'd feel closer to God. Maybe you'd feel more connected. Maybe you would feel less dirty. Maybe you'd feel like God is not so frustrated with you. That's this girl. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. All right, come on, girl. Like, I, I feel for you, but you can't touch him. You can't touch anyone. You can't even be in the street incognito like this. It's against the law. But that morning, she left her house, probably with her hood up. I mean, it's a small town. People know who she is. She saw Jesus coming up from the shore, thinking, maybe I could, maybe I could cut him off at this intersection without being noticed. Touch his garment. So much is wrong with that plan. I mean, who told her? Just touch the hem of his robe. Where, where did that even come from? But you see the desperation in her, hiding her face from her neighbors. As her eyes are locked on Jesus, he makes his way through the crowded streets, her hands shaking as Jesus' robe gets closer, and she got it. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Mark says, immediately, immediately she felt this change in her body that she had spent so much time and energy seeking. She's healed. Now, will the town believe that she's healed? You know, will she be accepted back into society? Will she still be an outcast? Will people actually believe somehow this girl was able to fix her 12-year-old problem? Who knows? But she felt the relief that she had only dreamt about. And she tries not to make a sound. Though everything in her wants to burst out with joy, she has to stay unseen, save the shriek of excitement for when she gets back into her house. She quickly turns down the street to go back home, but Jesus won't let her. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Verse 31. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked to see who had touched him. Now, Mark doesn't say which disciple said this, but I got 100 bucks on Peter. That guy answers when he's not supposed to answer, and when he's supposed to answer, he usually answers wrong. Peter is my hero. 
Nine guys, nine, nine people are touching you right now, Jesus. A hundred people have touched you since we've been on this street alone. Are you serious? Why are you asking? The stressed out dad maybe even joins in at this moment. You know, hey, Jesus, we don't have much time. Come on, why, why are we stopping? Let's keep going. But this is a serious moment here. Jesus just pulled the e-brake on healing a little girl and now stops this parade to ask, who touched me? And a sudden hush falls over the crowd. All eyes are locked on Jesus except for one set of eyes. She's trying to slip out unnoticed in the chaos like an introvert at a party. But as the chaos comes to a sudden halt, her heart starts pounding in her chest. And she looks up, and I bet her eyes meet his. Verse 33 says this, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Came in fear and trembling. In heaving sobs, it all comes out. Her identity revealed, shaking in fear. God is already upset with me. How much more have I gone and ticked him off now? You imagine the gasps from the neighbors around her. Did she, she's here. Did she, just, did she bump into us? Did, did she stand by you? She wear the kids. Did, did she touch our kids? How many of us here are unclean now? In shame, she looks down as her tears blur the cobblestone street. And just like you, every so often as your head hits the pillow, she braces herself for what God has in store for her. He's upset. Verse 34, and Jesus said to her, daughter, out of all the words to come out of his mouth, this was the last she was expecting to hear in that moment. Out of all the names that are being thrown at her from the crowd, that was not one of them. But if Jesus could sum up everything she needed to hear and feel from God in that moment, it was daughter. I didn't understand the definition of this word until six and a half years ago, and then five years ago, and, and then again two and a half years ago. Before being a dad, I had assumed that I'd be a boy dad. I'd figured that God would bless me with sons instead of punish me with daughters. And then the ultrasound text said to me, hey, you're having a girl. And then she said it again, and then she said it again. It was like she knew no other gender. She just kept saying, girl, girl, th three girls in a row. Nicole claims I had more to do with that than her, but I claim she touched them last. So, But for the last... Seven years, I have been bombarded with glitter and pink and princesses and jewelry boxes that I guess are called caboodles. You ever see a caboodle? They're, they're, uh, caboodles are like tackle boxes, only instead of filled with fishing hooks, they're filled with gaudy necklaces, and, and you decorate the box. I was handed a daughter three times, and I had no idea what I was, I still don't have any idea what I'm doing. Last man standing. But I tell you, my favorite memories are walking home from the office and, and when I would turn the corner of the block that I live on, I would see three little girls in, in order of birth, 
running at me as fast as their jellies could take them, with every step wondering if they were going to bite it, running and throwing their arms around my neck. I mean, every parent knows the feeling. There's, there's just nothing like it. Throwing them up in the air higher than they anticipate so that you know, their squeals stop as they lose their breath. And those gaudy necklaces clanging together. The rest of the walk home, they're competing with each other about telling me about their day. In God's wisdom, he knew it would take daughter to soften my heart. Three of them. I expected boys, but I'm a girl dad through and through. And now this word right here carries a huge intensity. Jesus says to her, daughter. The powerful words that left the lips of Jesus would enamor crowds. They would calm storms. They would heal limbs. They would cast demons. They would raise the dead. With all that power that left those lips, Jesus calls her daughter. For 12 years, unhuggable, unlovable, uninvited. For over a decade, she's felt completely disconnected from community Disconnected from God. And in front of the crowd, loud enough for everybody to hear, Jesus stops everyone and declares, Hey, this one is mine. You got a problem with her, you can have a problem with me. Because that's also what daughter means. If you're a parent, you can attest to that. See, I'm, I'm getting a little older. I'm only 33, but my wife keeps pointing out uh, gray hairs. I ran a 5K last week. I almost died. But if you mess with one of my daughters, you'll find out what's left in my tank and what's loaded in my closet. Can't wait for emails on that one. But the fact is, you mess with my daughter, you mess with me. And I'm not the perfect dad. Listen, I am far from the perfect dad. My love is imperfect my love is often selfishly motivated. My, my, my love is impatient. How much better is the perfect father's love? Who looks at this woman and calls her daughter. That word had to take the breath out of her. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay, so here's my question. If you look at verse 34, look at verse 34 again. If you look at verse 34, why was this necessary? Why was verse 34 necessary? Why did Jesus have to do this? Like, he could have just let her be. That's what she wanted. She wanted to come incognito, get healed, go back home without being seen. Instead, Jesus almost gave the poor girl a heart attack by pointing her out like he did. Then she ended up having to publicly pour out her heart in front of everybody. The neighbors then recognized her and were not happy. Why did Jesus stop this rush to draw attention to her in verse 33 and 34? Why is verse 34 necessary? And the answer to that is amazingly thoughtful, incredibly compassionate. I love this. The reason Jesus stopped the rush, the reason Jesus silenced the crowd, the reason Jesus pointed out this woman is because he didn't want to just heal her physically. 
Yeah, she, she could have went home unnoticed. She could have celebrated her new health. Uh, that's, that would have been huge. That is, that is all she wanted. But Jesus wanted more for her. He didn't want to just heal her physically. He wanted to heal her socially. He gave her the attention she didn't want so that in front of everybody, he could call her daughter. Because moving forward, this girl isn't just that formerly unclean girl with no friends. No, 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 no. There goes the girl. The only girl in Scripture that Jesus ever called daughter. There she goes. Jesus didn't want to just heal her physically. He wanted to heal her socially and spiritually. Like many of us who have a jaded view of God, thinking God must be cosmically frustrated, God must be just overall upset with me. That's what she was thinking until she got up close to the face of God and God said, daughter. And that is the face of God. Three things this text tells us about God. Uh, These are in your notes on the app. You can pull up these notes or just pull up a note on your phone. But I would encourage you to write these down. We need to be reminded of these three things this text tells us. Number one, you've made a mess and God wants it. You've made a mess, and God wants it. You've made a mess. I've made a mess. Scripture tells us that all have fallen short. I doubt I need to stand up here and convince you of this for very long. We all know the messes we've made. Thinking about the messes we've made makes us cringe. I mean, there are seasons of some of our lives that we would love to just kind of block out of our memory. Our rearview mirrors in life show us the messy wake of bad relationships and selfishness and poor choices. God wants to call it all out, truth in full. He wants us us to surrender it. And He wants it. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was not selective for what he was going to die for. Your mess may be big, but the power of Jesus' blood is greater. And God looks at you and says, I know when I saved you, I knew this, I knew when I saved you that you'd mess up. But I want you to run to me with it. And said, run away. You have a mess. God wants it. All of it. That dating relationship that you probably shouldn't be in. That seemingly hopeless marriage. That complex family drama. That painful private issue that you keep hidden. That addiction. The the web of lies. He, He wants it all. Just like the woman in the story, Jesus was the only cure. She'd gone to all these physicians, but Jesus was the only one. The same goes for you. The same goes for me. Stop hiding. Stop running. Let Jesus call it out. Let Jesus take it away and restore. You made a mess. And God wants it. Second thing this text tells us, what you want fixed, God wants more. What you want fixed, God wants more. Isn't this obvious from the text? For 12 years, 12 years, this girl socially distanced herself, distanced herself, lived in pain and shame and isolation, waiting for a cure. She went to Jesus for physical relief. Jesus had more in store for her. What you want fixed in your life, in your relationships, 
God wants more. But here's the thing with this, though. Like, this sounds great, but to be honest with you, it, it doesn't feel great. Usually when God has more for us, it's frustrating, uh, even scary. You think about it, when, when Jesus called out the woman to give her more than she asked for, it scared her. She trembled. She fell down at the feet of Jesus. She broke down and bore the truth. It's not what she was hoping for, but she got more than she was hoping for. And that's how it goes. You might want that issue to be fixed. You might be sitting there just wanting that job, but God wants more, which means you're going to have to wait, and that's frustrating, that's scary. Or you might be sitting there thinking, I I want that relationship issue fixed, but God has more, which could mean a dating breakup. It could mean counseling and marriage and sifting through tough conversations. It could mean waiting to find that person, and that's frustrating, and that's scary, You might be wanting infertility to go away, that financial problem fixed, that health issue resolved. And God says, I know you want that fixed, but I have more for you. You just have to wait and sit in this a little bit longer. What you want fixed, God wants more, which is great, but it often doesn't feel great. But the truth is, Jesus has more vision for your life than you have for your own. So give him your mess, follow his lead. He wants more for you than you want for yourself. Third thing this text teaches us, God is adamant about full restoration. God is adamant about full restoration. And if you're taking notes, which I hope you are right now, circle, highlight, underline, full, full, full. God is adamant about full restoration. The reason Jesus made that worried dad wait, the reason that Jesus pointed out a girl who did not want the attention is because Jesus was not satisfied with partial restoration. Jesus didn't want this girl to just go home healed physically, though that's all she wanted. Here Jesus shows his true passion, full 100% restoration, restoration back into community, restoration back into connection with God. God would far rather restore than pour out his wrath. It's why Jesus came. God doesn't want just one part of your life healed, restored, though maybe that's all you're focused on. God wants all of it surrendered, healed, and restored. And maybe number three is exactly what you needed to hear right now because you don't have full restoration. You don't have that great personal connection with God. Instead, you walk around like this girl convinced, I I, I can't get too close to God. I can't get too close to Jesus because I don't deserve it. I have unclean hands, so I'm not going to raise them in worship. I've made a mess. And so I'll tune into church I'll watch a few worship songs. I'll get my church credit in. But anything more, any closer to God, I don't deserve it because he's frustrated with me. I would be. And so I'll participate from afar. And if that's you, that is exactly who God is trying to reach right now with this text. You are not called to the edge of Jesus' robe. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for you and walking out of his grave, you are called into a relationship with him. 
It doesn't matter how frustrated you think he may be. He is all about full restoration. And the more you embrace that truth, the more you see clearly the face of God, the more you gravitate toward him. And that is why Jesus stopped. And when he did, that girl was scared out of her mind. Completely convinced that Jesus will be upset, that he'll rebuke me, he'll reject me, he'll take me according to the law. And how many of us are convinced of that same thing? Unwilling or sheepish to to return into God's presence because if I get closer to God, there will be judgment, there will be rejection, there will be anger, there will be condemnation, when in fact, the opposite is true. He knows you made a mess and he wants it. But you want fixed. God wants more. And he calls you past the hem of his robe to see his face more clearly, closer to him. That is the face of God. One of my favorite stories that my uh, kids like to hear, they, they ask me to tell it to them all the time. It happened to me when I was nine years old. My, my dad and my uncle took me and my cousin to the Boundary Waters for a couple weeks. Uh, the Boundary Waters are a series of lakes with currents, so really large rivers, um, w- between Minnesota and Canada. Beautiful, untouched area with wildlife and islands and no people. In fact, here's a picture from this trip when I was nine years old. Uh, it's me carrying the bag. My, my cousin there is sitting down, so I'm doing all the work here. But um, this, is, this is the Boundary Waters, and I believe, if I remember correctly, this was an island that we were camping on in the Boundary Waters. I was so excited for this trip. Uh, my cousin Ben, uh, who, who's sitting there, he, he and I were good, still are good friends, but we're good friends. We got along great. Uh, he, he was a pastor's kid, like I was, so we could commiserate together. And it was just going to be us two and our dads. It was like a, it was a man's trip. It was going to be awesome. And so before the trip, my, my cousin and I, we, we bought these uh, leather um, hunting knife uh, holsters with hunting knives in them, and we wore them on our belts like bosses, uh, which you could probably get in trouble for today, especially at nine years old, but um, we're from Wisconsin, and, uh, and it was the 90s, you know, when life was good. But uh, like, come on, I mean, you know it's going to be a good trip when you have a canoe on top of the car and a sleeping bag in the back and a knife on the belt. And the plan was to put everything in a canoe and, and travel down the river to who knows where and just spend a whole week drinking water out of the river like men. And so we drove up to northern Minnesota in my uncle's Jeep. And uh, we get up there in the late afternoon and we made camp. And uh, we had to actually had to make camp quickly. And so we unloaded the Jeep. And my dad and my uncle told us that we wanted to make camp closer down to the, to the river uh, where, where we were parked. And so they told us, hey, Junior and Ben, you take, you take the backpacks and you go down to the river, go down that trail, and, and we'll meet you down there. We'll follow with the canoes. And so my cousin and I, us men, we set off down the path. And after walking about a half a mile, there was this fork in the trail. One area or one road led into the swamp, and so we took the other way. And we walked and we walked and we walked, and the whole time we were just having the time of our lives talking about the manly stuff we're going to do. We're going to fish. We're going to chop wood. We're going to cut stuff with our knives. And after a while, we stopped, and my cousin, he, he said to me, he said, I don't think we were supposed to walk this far. Maybe we should turn back. But I said, hey, Ben, look, 
Look at our, look at our leather knife holsters. We're men now, okay? We don't retreat. We got to get to the river. Let's keep going. Well, finally, we found the water. We sat down on the banks of the river as accomplished pioneers and enjoyed the sunset uh, behind the river. And then it got dark, and then we got concerned, and our dads hadn't come. So what we did is we left our bags by the river, and we decided, let's walk down the path and, and meet our dads. Now, remember, we're in the middle of nowhere, pitch dark, wildlife all around. And so as we're walking back, we start hearing howling off in the distance and bushes rustling. And us men realized we were just nine-year-old boys, and we got pretty scared, so we took off running. While all that was happening, my dad and my uncle had carried those canoes, and when they got to that fork in the trail, they went into the swamp, amateurs. And so they turned around, and they went back to the Jeep, realizing that we went to the wrong drop-off point. And they got scared for us. They figured we got lost, like, or we walked into the swamp. And so my dad took off to the ranger station. Uh, rangers were getting ready to comb the area. There's talk of even getting a helicopter in the air. Uh, our dads were running around the woods screaming our names. We had no idea. Finally, we made it back to the Jeep, and my dad was at the ranger station, but my uncle was there, and he was panicked, and he was visibly upset. And I'd never seen my uncle upset before. He was an even-keeled kind of guy. And so I got worried, because if my uncle is upset, my dad's going to kill me. As we made our way to the ranger station, I was sitting in the back of that Jeep, trembling, fearing my dad's face when he saw me, because I was thinking, I'm in trouble. I'm going to be sent home. He's going to give it to me. So when I saw my dad come out of the ranger station, I started crying. I'm so sorry, Dad. I just wanted to prove to you I could find the river. I'm so sorry. And in mid-sentence, he scoops me up, gives me the biggest hug I've ever gotten, and he whispers, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad I have you. And as a son, I never forgot that hug and those words. That is exactly what I needed in that moment. And maybe that's exactly what you need from your Heavenly Father right now. He's offering it. But you won't get there at the hem of the robe, standing at a distance. God is calling you. You're mess and all. He wants it to do more with it than you could ever imagine. He wants full restoration for you. The question is, will you stay at a distance? Or like the girl in this text, will you look up, open up, and allow God to remind you who you are? Son, daughter. Hey, thanks again for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Better yet, hit that share button. Maybe screenshot it, share it with your friends. Thanks again for joining in. And until next time, God bless.